You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Angie, and today I'm very excited to be having a conversation with a special guest and fan of the podcast, Hope Carr. Hope is the education manager at the Austin Zoo in Austin, Texas, and she is the founder and chairperson of the Texas Lobo Coalition, which is an organization working to conserve and reintroduce the Mexican wolf to its native territory. Hope reached out to us on the podcast a few weeks ago about her zoo and conservation background. It was such an inspirational story that I knew we needed to tell it on the podcast and share it with everyone. Hope's story fills me with a lot of hope. So please enjoy, and I want to welcome Hope to the podcast. Hello, are you there? Hi, Angie. How's it going? So good. I'm just really happy that you're here. Uh, When you reached out to us a few weeks ago, I just knew that you and I were going to become great friends and that the story needed to get out there. So I appreciate your time and the energy you're going to bring to this podcast. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and to interview and to kind of deep dive into, um, I guess, both of my passion projects at this point. So... (laughs) Yes, and I love that word. Whenever I email anybody about the podcast, I'm like, dot, 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 my passion project, (laughs) (laughs) which AKA means we don't make any money. We just really (laughs) love doing this, right? Uh, But yeah, can you you start by giving our listeners a little bit about your background? Uh, Do you have a favorite animal encounter from when you were growing up? Yeah. um, I mean, I think my family always knew I was going to end up working with animals. My parents were always really big zoo supporters, and I moved around quite a bit growing up. So we'd visit different zoos all the time. Um, And we did live in San Diego for a stint. So we had season passes to San Diego Zoo and SeaWorld. And uh, I think my whole family enjoyed those trips, but I was just like in awe all the time. It was just my favorite thing if I knew we were going to be doing a zoo day. And, you know, I, I moved around to Florida, too. So Jacksonville Zoo was a big one for us. Um, I lived in North Carolina for a little bit. And I was always kind of the weird kid running around in the woods, catching lizards and toads and frogs and, you know, whatever else I could find. Yeah, they just called me a tomboy. So Yeah, that was definitely a term <laughs> used for me as well. Um, yeah, yeah, I think still to an extent a little bit. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll still go out into the woods and catch some, you know, lizards or whatever I can find. So um, that's still me on the inside for sure. And I know it's kind of funny. I was like texting my mom before the podcast, like, do you remember anything from when I was really little? 
that kind of showed or indicated that I was going to end up on this path. And apparently when I was two years old, my grandparents gave me a set of like, you know, plastic zoo animal toys, wild animal toys. And I didn't open the rest of my presents like almost all morning because I was just like, I want to play with this. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also remembered there was a zoological park somewhere in the Everglades. I was probably like 12 or 13, kind of like my peak awkward tomboy stage, really. <laughs> and there was like a wildlife encounter show and a little amphitheater And the educators had like a bag with something clearly moving inside it. And they asked if a volunteer wanted to come down. And I'm assuming they called on me because I was a little blonde girl that would freak out on stage like they wanted me to. And that's not what they got. (laughs) So I go down (laughs) on stage and he's like, oh, do you want to put the hand in the bag? And I'm assuming most people are like, oh, no. And I was just like, yeah, okay," And like went to stick my hand right in there. And (laughs) they were like, oh, uh, that's not. No, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that was just, that's always kind of been me just running around learning about the animals. I always had books about animals growing up that I would just pour through. So yeah, no one's surprised with my uh, career choices. So (laughs) Oh, that's so awesome. It's such a fun childhood growing up loving animals. And Mm -hmm. I definitely got into a lot of things. My mom said that her moment for me when she knew that I was going to work with, with animals is when my my grandma got me a beautiful doll. I don't know if it was a Barbie or a Cabbage Patch Kid, just to date myself. Uh, <laughs> but regardless, I was kind of bratty, and I was like, I don't want this. I, I just want, I only want stuffed animals or plastic, an- you know, mm-hmm. a- animal toys. That's all I wanted. And uh, so I had no dolls growing up, which. Not that there's a right or wrong thing to have to play with, but it was mm-hmm. just a little bit different than what my sister was doing. And my mom was like, oh, boy, this we better get this kid horseback riding lesson. She won't leave us alone. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Now, Hope, that leads me into another really important question that many listeners uh, write to us at the podcast and ask about. And it's, I love animals. I grew up wanting to be around them, trying to be around them, always interacting with them how do I break into the zoo industry or how do I break into a zoo conservation career? And I was wondering if you could share with us how you basically did both. So how'd you go from playing with toads and sticking your (laughs) hand in a bag of presumably something? Yes. (laughs) Only in Florida, right? Uh, To being an education manager at the Austin Zoo and running a conservation organization. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, like growing up, I always knew I wanted to work with animals. I'm pretty sure I used to say vet at some point when I was really, really little. And then I was always watching like Steve Irwin and Jeff Corwin growing up. Like those were my heroes. Those were my idols. Um, I was definitely crying on the day Steve Irwin passed away, but following his family has been just super inspirational. Um, yes, I follow Bindi. Yes. Oh my gosh. Baby, so I'm in love with her, her little baby. <laughs> oh my gosh. So cute. So cute. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And then I, I kind of was thinking as I was getting ready to go into college that I would be like a research zoologist and do like field work. So I went in to get my bachelor's degree at BYU in Utah and got my degree in wildlife conservation. And most of that time period, I was thinking, you know, maybe I'll get my master's and, you know, stay on the research track. And then while I was in school, I had some research opportunities with some professors for either, um, you know, paid tech positions or volunteerships that counted for college credit or whatever. And 
I realized that it was a lot of fun going out into the desert and tagging mule deer and kangaroo rats, but it's really not fun for me to sit in a lab. (laughs) And there was a lot of lab time and that just did not do it for me. I was like, I want to be hands-on with the animals. Um, So I ended up taking, um, it was right before my last um, semester of college, I took a seasonal position as an educator at Utah's Hogle Zoo, um, which I know mm-hmm. you got, you've interviewed a couple people that have worked there. And I'm always like, I know what animals that. they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, they're a great zoo. And I pretty much worked there from March 2016 um, through October, pretty much. And it was just really awesome to have this experience of Working directly with animals, I worked with a lot. They're really cool ambassador animals. There were two kookaburras I worked with, and one hated me, and one loved me. Um, <laughs> no one it about, is with birds, right, man, yeah. but they either <laughs> like you or they don't. So, <laughs> Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just kind of loved being this bridge between the public that maybe cared about animals or liked them, but didn't really know what threats they were facing or how they could help them. And being that bridge that helps them kind of forge this connection with a live animal and telling them what they can do and answering questions and kind of like lighting that spark in them. Because at the end of the day, you know, if there's a handful of people doing stuff that helps conservation efforts, that's not really going to do anything. But if a lot of people do a few little things, then it can make all the difference in the world. So um, I just loved that role. And I ended up after that seasonal position ended, I took a job as an educator at the Loveland Living Planet Aquarium, which is in Utah. Um, They got AZA accredited, I believe, while I was there, we were getting ready for that accreditation. So um, they've got that as well. And I did a lot of outreach education, which was really cool, bringing animals into the classrooms. They had a really awesome, robust education program. So it was really insightful to see just how much of a reach a a zoo or an aquarium can have. And while I was there, I kind of started toying with the idea of zookeeping. Um, So I, I worked 40 hours a week at the aquarium, and then I'd go in on a day off once a week or twice a month to go volunteer with the endotherms team which was a really cool opportunity. Some organizations don't let you do that, but they let education staff volunteer for the husbandry teams um, if they were interested. And I just kind of realized that it was really cool being able to care for some of those animals and help. But I really um, enjoyed, again, kind of being that that bridge for the public. So yeah, I worked there for a little bit, uh, about a year and a half or so. And then I actually ended up working at a humane society for a little bit, kind of a random career jump, which was really rewarding, but also wildly depressing. Compassion fatigue is a thing for anyone that works with animals um, or people, pretty much any big hearted, empathetic person, (laughs) I think can struggle with that. And I ended up having an old colleague that worked at the aquarium take the position of the director of animal care. Um, at the Austin Zoo. And when the education manager position opened up, he knew I had been wanting to get back into that that field, that arena. Um, so he recommended me, pretty much called me up and was like, are you interested? And I was like, yes, 100%. I will fly down to interview as soon as you guys need. So I flew down and interviewed and it went great. Um, and a month later, I had my Subaru loaded up with my dog and was driving down to Texas by myself. And that was March 2020. So right when the pandemic started, actually. So really, really fun, fun year. (laughs) Yes, definitely interesting time to be 
traveling across the country, but at yeah. least you landed in Austin, and Austin is the coolest city. Oh my gosh, I, yeah. I went many years ago to South by Southwest, and um, I did not get to the Austin Zoo, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I was too too busy rocking out with music or whatever. Oh, yeah. Uh, watching people. I wasn't <laughs> uh, um, I'm not. I'm not that cool, I wish. <laughs> but it's such a beautiful city. I mean, if you're going to land somewhere new, that's that's It's that's the city to, to restart in, let me tell you. It's it's really cool. Even moving here during the pandemic, I was like, this place, I mean, there's really good food. There's breweries and wineries everywhere. Well, and um, it's green and rolling. I didn't yeah. realize how the, all the rolling hills, and uh, not mm-hmm. mountainous, but definitely not like how I would have pictured Texas mm-hmm. as more flat. Oh, yeah. The uh, hill country yeah. out here is just beautiful. Like it's gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. And can you share with our listeners what is your role at the Austin Zoo and what a day in the life of Hope looks like? <laughs> yeah, so um, no day is really the same. <laughs> um, but my role is the education manager, so I'm running the education department. It is a very small department, which was kind of um, what really, um, I guess, enticed me with the role. Is It's it's me and one part-time educator right now. She is thankfully going full-time in May. <laughs> Um, so we're slowly growing. Um, obviously when the pandemic started, I didn't really need that much help. Um, but as things have gotten, you know, more back to normal or the new normal, I guess I should say, you know, we've been able to find ways to grow. But one thing that I love about my job is a lot of times when you're in a management position, especially in the education department at a zoo or an aquarium, you're not hands-on with the animals anymore. Um, but For me, I'm still the primary caretaker of all of the um, education ambassador animals, which is really cool. Um, So I do that. I obviously do the boring management stuff of scheduling and coordinating times and and all that fun stuff. But I also um, still get to run a good majority of the education programs. Um, I'm developing new curriculum all the time, which for me... The more animals, the better. <laughs> um, the more animals I can get people up close to, the better. And um, one of my big uh, goals, and I can get into this a little bit more later, is expanding the conservation messaging of the zoo. So we are mostly a rescue facility. So there's certain messaging that's been really strong in the past, which is good. It's important. It's great. But I'm also like, here's all these other things we can talk about. So it's been really cool to kind of have some creative freedom in a role that at another facility, maybe I wouldn't have had that opportunity. Oh, yes. Creative freedom is really the best and the room to grow and to have um, a team that supports you growing your educational program has just got to be really exciting. And now, Hope, can you talk about some of the education programs that you are currently running at the Austin Zoo? Yeah. um, So... I do a lot of um, summer camp prep. I feel like summer camp is only like three months out of the year, not even two and a half. Gracie, you don't need to growl. You're okay. (laughs) Hi, Gracie. I have a golden retriever that mildly thinks she's a Rottweiler sometimes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I do a lot of summer camp prep. We do Saturday camps twice a month, which are really fun field trip programs, outreach programs, which are my favorite. I think the aquarium just really drove my love for outreach home. And yeah, with my background at two AZA accredited facilities, I have a lot of background in kind of that strategic framing of environmental issues um, and how to talk to people about conservation without being like condescending or doom and gloom. Scary. Right? Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. So I've kind of been trying to incorporate that into some of these programs. I've, I've kind of you know, just touch the surface with saying field trip programs and stuff. There were only a a handful of options when I started and I've 
constantly been working on developing um, more for a wider variety of age groups and grades and um, different issues. And again, getting that conservation messaging in. So yeah, I also do um, homeschool classes for people that um, have um, homeschool kids that, you know, don't have the opportunity to do a field trip at the zoo. We do like a monthly, we call them our homeschool nature series classes. And they're really fun. And I'm always developing new classes for them because I get so many um, repeat clientele. I don't like that word for some reason, but I get a lot of repeats. So I want to make sure like these kids are getting new information and new um, activities and new animals when possible. So I'm always like constantly just thinking of, okay, what can we do next? What can we do next? And now do you have a favorite education zoo animal or oh my a funny story about one of them? Because I, when I was a zoo educator and would go out and about to different places or even on grounds, uh, there was always something silly going on and something inspiring. Uh, and then, of course, behind the scenes, I just they, they were all so great. I, I, I don't know if I, if somebody asked me if I had a favorite, I don't know if I, I could say what my favorite was, but I, I know my top favorites. How about that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cause they all, yeah. Oh man. You can't pick a favorite. You have some that you're definitely bonded more to for sure. And, mm-hmm. and I work with a pretty wide variety. Um, you know, I've got little invertebrates like a tarantula and a scorpion. I've got a lot of reptiles, a few snakes, but and we've got chinchillas and guinea pigs and a hedgehog. And I love seeing different people's reactions to each of them too. Like when you bring out, you know, in one presentation, I could have the boa constrictor out one minute, which I'm like, look at this, this is amazing. And the next I have out our little hedgehog who's adorable and he'll get like a bigger reaction than, you know, the seven foot boa. And (laughs) I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, But my favorite right now One of my favorites right now is probably an African gray parrot that we were able to rescue um, in November last year. So I've only been working with him for about four months. And he, uh, his name's Jazzy, and he was someone's pet for about 10 years. And then he was given to a parrot rescue. And the woman running that was great, but she um, started having to work more and didn't have time for it. So she contacted us to see if we could... um, help out at all. So, and as soon as I heard African gray parrot, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, (laughs) he will be great for education. Um, So we brought him on and he is just a total ham and he has like the biggest vocabulary of any African gray I think I've ever met. And they're already very impressive. They already have the ability to, to mimic more words and sounds than any other species of parrot. And he just it's, it's wild. It's just really wild. This parrot, like he, I mean, I think everyone knows they're not actually speaking English, but he definitely has associations with certain phrases for certain things. So when I come in in the morning, the first thing he's saying to me is want some breakfast. Like he's very food motivated, (laughs) very, very food motivated. And then if he wants to go for a walk, he'll ask, he'll say, want to go for a walk or go outside and see flowers. Like he's so on top of it. But the funniest thing about him is he has kind of his normal voice that he'll use. But every once in a while, he'll like change tone to the point where I'm like, is that Jazzy talking? Or did someone just like walk into my office without me hearing them? So that's incredible. Yeah, he will drop into this like deep voice every once in a while. And he'll be like, what you doing over there? And I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Who just came into my office? And it's just Jazzy. Um, And he, 
Sometimes his his um, enclosure is kind of in the room next to my office. And every once in a while, he'll just be giving himself little pep talks back there. He'll he'll just be back there going, Jazzy's such a good, good bird. I'm so smart. And I'm like, yes, do those self-affirmations, buddy. You are so smart. I need to do some of that in the mirror each morning. I can yeah. learn some stuff from Jazzy. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Um, but he's just been really fun to bond with. I mean – Credit where credit is due. Whoever had him as a pet, he's in like pristine conditions. His feathers all look good. I know a lot of times when we see um, rescue parrots come into a zoo or an aquarium, they've done self-plucking because of stress or, you know, maybe a health issue they've had going on. His feathers look really good. He's really social. I mean, he's a parrot, so he's got his quirks. He's got his tells. But overall, he's just been like the best. And he's been such an incredible um, addition. People love him. And he's really good to to use for um, education purposes because he, you know, he's so funny and he's so pretty. And then all of a sudden he's mimicking the sound of a phone ringing or a truck backing up. And I'm like, yeah, now think about having that in your house at 3 a.m. Are you sure you want this? <laughs> um. <laughs> well, and that's what I was going to ask you. Do you use him as kind of an ambassador, of course, besides conservation mm-hmm. and all that, but do you also use him as why not to get a pet parrot, right? Oh, like his story absolutely. He was bounced around, sounds like up from what we know, a couple different places. Mm-hmm. And then luckily ended up in your hands, which sounds mm-hmm. amazing <laughs> and has a whole new life purpose. Mm-hmm. But not all parrots are that lucky with their, you know, with their longevity. And a lot of them only mm-hmm. like one people. Like I, mm-hmm. I worked in tequila, um, a double yellow-headed Amazon parrot mm-hmm. that didn't like females. She liked males, but not female mm-hmm. keepers. And so it took me a long time to build her trust for me to be able to take her out and do zoo education with her. Um, yeah. She also bit my finger, but she let, she let me keep it. So we became really <laughs> good friends after that. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, did, I didn't know if you touched on that at all because that's definitely – Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's my big messaging with him is, you know, maybe you think you want this as a pet but I work with him every day and I don't want him in my house. (laughs) (laughs) Like if worse comes to worse, the zoo's on fire. Like, yes, absolutely. I will take him with me, but I never want a pet parrot, you know, I, I, uh, you know, and I'll go into, you know, most people don't give them the proper diet. They're not getting the proper enrichment or training in, in a home as a pet. A lot of times socialization. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, he was really well taken care of. I do work with another parrot though. Um, His name's George. He's, I got such a soft spot for George because he's a parrot that is a one person bird. And I kind of had to earn it with him. And now like I'm his person at work. Like he will tolerate a couple of other people, but he almost has like a jealousy thing going on where if I am there and, you know, my staff member is there trying to take care of him. He's like a little dinosaur for a second, you know? And, oh yeah. but if I am, yeah, if I'm not there, then he's overall fine. You know, like he'll let Mm -hmm. other people give him head scratches or whatever. But if I'm there, he's like, not about it. It's it's very interesting. And I don't think people realize just how big their personalities are and how hardcore they bond to people. So right. and with their life expectancy, their longevity of 60 plus years, depending on the species, you know, do you have the lifespan to take care of that? <laughs> you know, is the bird going to outlive you after you've gotten it? So yeah, it's just there's yeah. so much to think mm-hmm, about. Absolutely. But I hope this actually leads me into a really good point about the Austin Zoo that is just really impressive in that they have a mission to not only rescue wildlife, but then, of course, also to enhance zoo conservation. Mm -hmm. 
But looking more into the first point about rescuing wildlife, most zoos will not accept wildlife. Most zoos, Mm -hmm. accredited zoos, they cannot accept people's pets Mm -hmm. that they don't want or other exotic animals because usually there's not enough room and also they don't know the background or the uh, the breeding and the genetics of that species. And so I think it's a little bit of a misnomer where some people think like, oh, well, if I get this pet turtle and I don't want it, I can just take it to the Lincoln mm-hmm. Park Zoo or the San Diego mm-hmm. Zoo. Um, and I can't speak for the San Diego Zoo, but I know that most zoos typically don't accept wildlife unless it's a unless it's like a really special circumstance. Mm-hmm. And so the Austin Zoo has a slightly different mission in that they are started off as a rescue to actually take in unwanted animals. So I was hoping you could maybe touch on that a little bit and how the Austin Zoo is really, really unique mm-hmm. uh, for doing yeah, this. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of interesting when I came out to interview um, because, like I said, you know, I worked at two AZA accredited facilities, which do great work for conservation. They're obviously supporting conservation efforts, you know, in the field. They've got species survival plans going on. You know, they typically have really high quality grounds and facilities and and all that good stuff. And Austin Zoo, since we're a non-breeding facility and we can't participate in species survival plans, AZA accreditation isn't something that we have. We are accredited by the Zoological Association of America, so the ZAA. But yeah, we're we're really focused on rescue. Um, And it actually started, um, it used to be called Good Day Ranch back in like 1990. And then it kind of turned into like a a domestic animal rescue for farm animals, which we still have a lot of like llamas and alpacas and goats and um, because they're the best. Yes. Um, We (laughs) rescued um, a zebu recently that's in our uh, in with our llamas and alpacas and our deer. And she's just like the biggest sweetheart. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But yeah, and then it kind of expanded into more of an exotic animal rescue. Um, Texas has very interesting laws as far as pet ownership goes. So there are a lot of animals. Oh, you mean lack there? I think you mean lack thereof. <laughs> lack thereof, yes. <laughs> the lack of laws that should be there. <laughs> so there are a lot of people that get these exotic animals as pets and then they realize, oh, I bit off more than I can chew or maybe they didn't own it legally. Um, so it's confiscated. Or they and- got hurt. They got hurt. Um, So we, you know, are now a place that people can surrender these animals to. Obviously, there's a lot that needs to be considered. You know, we we can't take in everything we're contacted about. Um, We need to make sure we have the space and the funding. And, you know, is it social? Do we want to co-house it? You know, there's there's so much going on as far as that goes. Um, So we are um, a lot more kind of like a rustic vibe than than people might expect if they're trying if they're used to Fort Worth Zoo or San Antonio Zoo or something, um, which again are great great organizations. But yeah, it's kind of interesting because as you're walking around the zoo, you know, on the sign for each animal, it'll say what the species is, um, but it'll also say like the animal's name, you know, some cool facts about them, um, and then the bottom paragraph is always how they came to be at Austin Zoo, so people can kind of learn um, where they came from and what their background is. And it really just, I kind of think of us like the Island of Misfit Toys a little bit. Like we've just got all these unique backstories and some of them, you know, are, are really sad, really harrowing. And some of them, you're just kind of like, what was this person thinking? <laughs> you know? Right. Would you mind sharing one of those stories? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've got a lot of our primates and our parrots were previous pets that people donated. We've got, you know, monkeys that had uh, capuchins, especially that have had teeth pulled because monkeys become adolescent 
or become bitey when they're adolescent, I should say. Um, and people don't like that. So they'll have the teeth pulled, which to me, if you can't handle an animal's natural behavior, maybe don't bring it into your house. That's just my two cents. <laughs> I think it's very good advice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And then we've got, uh, we do have some wildlife rescues as well. Um, we've got five mountain lions that were all orphaned as cubs, kind of from different situations that we have. We have our black bears that were orphaned as cubs. Um, and then a great horned owl that was a wildlife injury. She actually got injured once released, injured herself again, and then couldn't be rehabilitated again. So she came to be with us mm. too. Probably my favorite story though, is a rescue that happened I pretty much a week after I started. We were contacted by the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. They had raided a property in Southern Texas and found a white tiger bobcats. Uh, he had African crested porcupines, pretty much a whole plethora of animals that he did not own legally. And so we were able to take in a couple of the African crested porcupines as well as the white tiger. And I think most people, especially the audience for this podcast is familiar with the issues of breeding um, for that coloration in white tigers, there can be a lot of deformities um, if you're getting into the inbreeding. Thankfully, right, it's not a species of, yeah, it's not a species of tiger. It's a right. color coat exactly. pattern that started basically from two individuals mm-hmm. yep, that exactly. I think were related. Yes. Um, and it can occur naturally um, in the wild, but it's extremely rare. But people will take that, breed those together, breed those together, breed those together, and you know, it just causes this whole, whole inbreeding problem. It's not a different species or subspecies of tiger. That's what I tell people all the time. Zulema, our white tiger, um, we call her Zuzu for short. (laughs) She's not, she's most likely a Bengal tiger. (laughs) Like that's just been inbred, Mm -hmm. you know, for that coloration. And when she came to us, she was underweight. She uh, was being kept before she came to us. And I think it was like a a 12 by 15 foot concrete cage. Um, And she was about nine months old at the time. So she's just over two years old now. Um, And I saw pictures of the conditions that she was in before she came to us. And it just like wrenched my gut. Like I could not fathom how someone could treat an animal like that. And she thankfully now is like ideal body condition. She is wildly social. Like she loves her keepers. I don't work with her directly, but she'll chuff at me when I'm walking by, um, which I think you've talked about Aww. on the show before. A chuff from a tiger is like, hi, I like you. Like what you have to. Yes. Just, she just reminds me of like- what she wants. Yes. Oh my gosh. She is just a total ham. And it's just really cool to see how far she's come because when we first let her out into her habitat- she didn't even really have the musculature to run around in there. I don't think she had ever felt grass on her paws before. And now she's just like, she'll chuff at guests sometimes. Like Aww, she just, girl. I know she is just like, I'll have to send you pictures of her. Cause <laughs> yeah, send us a video. We'll put it on yes. Instagram. Yes, oh my gosh. She's it. so awesome. And she does, you know, a lot of training with her keepers now. She's just, so much happier. It's just been really awesome to see her progress. And um, especially since she came to the zoo pretty much when I did. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. What? Yes, that's, that's such a great story. And it can be gut-wrenching to hear some of these stories. A while back on the podcast, we talked to Carolina Tiger Rescue and just, it was really, really eye-opening. So, so for all of our listeners out there wanting to know a little bit more about 
tigers and the laws of keeping them in the United States, um, exotic pets, ownership, and why it's not a good idea at all. Um, check out that interview because it really it really is eye-opening. And, and I just think it's a real blessing that the Austin Zoo is willing to take in some of these land of the misfits, as, as Hope <laughs> said. Um, now, switching gears a little bit, moving to not your necessarily your day job, but more of your passion project. I know that wolves are one of your favorite animals. Do you have wolves at the Austin Zoo or do you have a favorite wolf interaction story that kind of sparked your interest in wanting to help conserve uh, wolf populations? Yeah, um, I will be 100% honest. Wolves are my second favorite. African painted dogs take the number one spot. Um, <laughs> but, That's you know. fair. I understand. I've got the zebras. <laughs> I've got the rhinos. Yeah. I've got the horses. And it's, yes, I wouldn't want anybody to ask me on air what my favorite is because I always yeah. just say, well, it's hard. It's it's very, it depends on right. the day. And my yeah, it's a close second. It's still in that Canada family. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll roll mm-hmm. with that. Um, but yeah, they... When I was in college, I took a forest ecology class and we were able to do a little road trip up to Yellowstone. And my professor actually knew some of the wolf biologists that have been working on that um, reintroduction project. And so we kind of all our class just loaded up into our big vans. We drove up to Yellowstone, got there at midnight, woke up at 3 a.m. to go <laughs> drive out to Lamar Valley and hook up with the uh, wolf biologists. And we tracked down one of the packs. Like I got to see, I, I, I could cry thinking about it right now. I was sobbing. I don't know if it was the sleep deprivation or, or the moment or both, but uh, you know, we found one of the packs jumped out of the vans. We got our spotting scopes and binoculars out and just watched this pack just run along the ridges in Lamar Valley. And it was just the most like inspiring, humbling, most amazing experience ever. And I don't even think I have any photos from that trip, which, which is a bummer, but you do in um, your mind and now you're sharing head. it with, with a worldwide audience. <laughs> yes. And I have goosebumps lis- listening because I have never, I've never even been to Yellowstone, mm-hmm. which is just, uh, oh, you have you know, to go. It's, it's yeah. on the bucket list. Yes. But to see that, how cool, man, you were the right people. That's yeah. awesome. And that was always just, uh, we, we got to uh, listen to one of the biologists that's been working on that project for 20 plus years at that point. He um, was telling us all about the dynamics between the packs. And let me tell you, it's like a soap opera up there. Like they are so intelligent and loyal to each other. It is just next level. And I think that's part of why people um, are both kind of scared and awestruck by wolves is how close we can see ourselves in them almost. It's, it's really, really wild. And yeah. And that was always just a project that fascinated me. Like in college, anytime it was like, Oh, do a research paper. And it was pretty open-ended on what I could write about. I was always doing research on the Yellowstone reintroduction project, diving into the primary research that was done and, and writing about that. And it was just so, so cool. And then, yeah, we do have um, wolves at um, Austin Zoo. We have five that are sisters. Um, they're all female. They came to us from, it was an individual in Illinois that was, he owned several wolves uh, and he let his USDA license expire. So those three came to, or those five came to us 
and they're beautiful. They're almost all of them are white. Um, some of them have a little bit more of the red issue in them, but they're absolutely gorgeous. Um, and then we do have a couple of wolf hybrids as well. Um, because you know, people think they want something that has wolf in it, but you don't, I promise you, you don't, they're almost, I would argue more unpredictable than a wolf because you don't know how much genetically you're getting, uh, from the wolf side and the dog side. Yes, they're pretty, but it's unpredictable. And it's honestly not fair to that animal that doesn't really have a role in the world. Such a great point. I, I agree. That's that's a whole different podcast for a different day. Yeah. <laughs> but that is something we that is definitely something we should cover because I I keep seeing more and more of it. And same thing with a uh, with cats. Uh, and I'm just yeah. Like, what are, mm-hmm. I mean, people are getting I, savannah. Cats I need to do more research on it. Or, yeah, or get, mm-hmm. or get an expert in because it's definitely a little out of my lane. Mm-hmm. to talk on it, but uh, it would be very interesting for the podcast. And and as and as you're evidence of a lot of a lot of these hybrids don't make it in the real world and then need to be rescued and Mm -hmm. they're lucky enough that austin zoo is willing to do that but not there's not enough home for rescue animals out there even for domestics Mm -hmm. i mean like you said Mm -hmm. amount of dogs domestic dogs and cats and shelters and horses Mm -hmm. is overwhelming there's just not enough Mm -hmm. room let alone for exotic animals so yeah Absolutely. Uh, but speaking of wolves, Hope, can you give our listeners a little background on the species and subspecies of wolves in North America and their conservation status and what some of the issues are? Yeah, for sure. Um, I will um, give you guys the the research as I understand it and as I accept it. Bear in mind, there's always been a lot of controversy and debate over classification of wolf species and subspecies. That's a good disclaimer. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, if you don't agree with me, that's okay. But (laughs) sure. You're telling, yes, you're telling your, your side of the story from doing a lot of, a lot of personal time investing in this topic. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So typically uh, it's considered that there are two species of wolf in North America, red wolves, which again has been controversial. You guys touched on that in your red wolf podcast a little bit. And then the gray wolf. And the gray wolf has been, they used to have it listed as like 24 subspecies of gray wolf or something up until I think the 80s, there was a zoologist that was like, no, there's pretty much five. So 24 or five. <laughs> but the most debatable is the the eastern wolf. Um, that's pretty debated on whether it's a hybrid or or its own thing or or what what have you. There's the Great Plains um, gray wolf, which is the most common. They're considered a least concerned subspecies overall. And we're going to have a fun conversation about the delisting and relisting um, that just happened recently. <laughs> so, uh, and then there's the Northwestern wolf. That's also considered least concern overall. The Arctic wolf. Um, thankfully, the Arctic wolf isn't facing as many threats as the, the rest of the subspecies because they are so far up there off the grid. And then there's the Mexican gray wolf, which is listed as endangered. Um, And that's going to be the smallest of the subspecies. And that's the one that um, the Texas Lobo Coalition is is focused on helping. So, yeah, did you hear about the... So in 2020, wolves were delisted. And then just this last week, they were relisted um, with uh, under the Endangered Species Act in 44 states. Did you read about that? And so this is on a, fe- a federal level, not yes. necessarily, because I know different states can do different things too. Right. Yeah. So it's it's only effective in 44 states. Um, unfortunately, the states that 
had done it on on more of a state level. It's not applying to you. So I right, believe like Idaho, Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. The the listing um, is not applied. Was my understanding of okay. it right? Better news than yeah. I was happy about it. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that was pretty exciting news on the wolf front overall. Um, yeah. <laughs> And what is the listing in uh, Texas and Arizona where the gray Mexican wolf historically is from? Yeah, so um, Mexican gray wolves are considered to be endangered. They are an endangered subspecies. They have been restored already in New Mexico and Arizona, which is um, only a portion of their historic range. And they were historically found, um, I believe, even up into Utah a little bit. They were found in a good chunk of Texas, um, which is what my organization is pushing for is, hey, these guys deserve to be restored here too. There's a land that, you know, we could, we could have them on. But it's a very, very controversial subject. So there's a lot, a lot that we're navigating right now. Right. And before we dive a little bit into what your organization is uh, doing to help to help save these Mexican gray wolves, um, can you talk a little bit about some of this historical conflict between human and wolves? And as we mentioned a little bit, like they're listed as endangered and then they're delisted and then they're relisted. And um, there's just, there's a lot of issues there. And some of it's on a state basis, like certain states have more of a conflict than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's your overall take on where we stand with this human-wolf conflict? Yeah, I will say part of what prompted me to start this organization is I do feel, and my board does feel, that there has been a shift in perspective on wolves overall, especially since the reintroduction um, into Yellowstone. But there's always been kind of an innate fear of wolves since pretty much the United States was colonized. I mean, you look way back in history, you've got Native Americans that highly respected them and wanted to emulate them. And again, I think saw that reflection of themselves in these wolf packs, kind of like I touched on earlier. But, you know, uh, Europeans came over and colonized the United States and wolves were viewed as a threat. And that's not unjustified by any means. I mean, people's livelihoods were and to an extent still are at stake, you know, so I always want to come from a place of sympathy, where, you know, I understand that if a wolf takes out, you know, one of your cattle, that that can, you know, cause so many problems, that's a financial loss. Mm -hmm. And it's it can be absolutely devastating, and so a lot of ranchers, um, especially, will feel obligated to protect their property, to protect their livelihood, um, and feel the need to to shoot a wolf anywhere near their property. And I always try to stay, you know, up up to date on what people's thoughts are as far as you know the other side. In air quotes, um, I don't think that should be. I don't think we need to be viewing this as sides. I think we need to be viewing this as people need to come together and find a, a solution. Yeah, it's where, a community. It's a community mm-hmm. issue for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, there has been a lot of research into management techniques other than shooting a wolf uh, or taking is a term that's commonly used um, in management practices. Um, rather than taking wolves every season, there are non-lethal techniques that you can use to keep wolves away from your property. Um, there are mitigation 
um, efforts as well. So that if someone loses their, a, a livestock, um, it can be assessed and then they can be reimbursed. I have heard that on the government level, that's caused a lot of frustration for ranchers. So hopefully, you know, nonprofits like mine and others can maybe partner up and create a mitigation fund at some point. That would be really cool. But yeah, that's where a lot of the conflict comes from is ranchers. Um, some hunters, it kind of depends on what demographic of hunter you're looking at. But some hunters don't really don't mind having wolves around um, as long as it's managed in a way that they view as effective. Some hunters become frustrated because even if there's not necessarily less deer and elk overall, um, behavior of a of a uh, an ungulate is going to change wildly, drastically when there's an apex predator present. They're not going to be browsing and grazing in the same areas, which means a blind that this hunter has been using for years and years and years suddenly isn't an effective spot anymore. So that can be frustrating for them. But like I said, I think that there's there's opportunity for for us to collaborate with ranchers and hunters and kind of find this, this happy medium. And that's kind of been, it's been interesting to kind of watch how New Mexico and Arizona have been, have been handling uh, the reintroduction of the the Mexican gray wolf there. So yes, thank you for that. I think you have a nice summary of this very long standing issue, but there, I do believe there is hope out there and there's other programs that have worked and there's data behind uh, some of this wolf human conflict depicting ways to manage this conflict in a non-lethal um, in a non-lethal way. Now hope for people that aren't necessarily fans of bringing uh, the Mexican wolf back into Texas and to some of its native homeland, what would you say to encourage people that wolves are good for the ecosystem and, and why would we want them back in Texas? Yeah, um, absolutely. So right off the bat, I do like to let people know that Mexican gray wolves are much smaller than other subspecies of gray wolf. So they're only, um, they're typically under 100 pounds, typically right between like 60 to 80 pounds. So it's already a much smaller um, subspecies of wolf, which um, is obviously going to affect what their primary prey base is. But wolf, wolf restoration in general I mean, the classic example that I kind of touched on while I almost cried a little bit <laughs> was uh, is Yellowstone. Um, wolves were absent from the park a good majority of um, the 20th century and then were reintroduced in 1994, I believe. And the impact that they had on the environment out there, I think, astounded even the people that were for wolf restoration to begin with. So when you have an apex predator in, in, in the environment, not only are they controlling the ungulate populations like the deer and the elk and making those populations healthier overall, they're, they're preventing disease spread. Chronic wasting disease is a huge issue um, in ungulate species. Um, they're helping to control that. They're pretty much increasing the fitness of, of those populations overall. And then by controlling those populations, they're having impacts you might not think about right away. When you have uh, a controlled population of deer and elk, you're lessening the effect of grazing and browsing on plant life. When you're making the plant life healthier, you're helping out other animals like birds, squirrels, bears, beavers. You're helping beavers who then help you know, the river systems and the animals that depend on the rivers, like the fish and the amphibians. It's it's really by bringing this one animal back, you're improving the ecosystem overall, which, you know, depending on, on what your perspective is, 
might that might in and of itself be enough for me having a healthy ecosystem in place is something that that makes me happier it makes me feel like the earth is improving it it it's an innate intrinsic reward for someone like me if you are more concerned with like what's the actual benefit i mean when you have a healthy ecosystem your water systems are healthier your disease spread to your pets and your livestock is mitigated. There's so many benefits that you um, might not think about, but the research is there. If you, if you do the research, you can find why having apex predators present is so crucial. Absolutely. Absolutely. So important. Talking about the Mexican wolf, what prompted you to start this nonprofit, the Texas Lobo Coalition? How did you start it? And what is the mission of your organization? Yeah, um, it's kind of, it's kind of funny, because I, it, it didn't fall into my lap by any means, but it's not necessarily something I set out to do. Like I knew I wanted to do this. When I first started, um, that's how the podcast started. So (laughs) yes, I want to hear the story. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It's funny how life happens. You know, um, I'm just kind of, yeah, just running around like a chicken with my head cut off and trying to get stuff done. So, <laughs> oh yeah, my my dad always his advice was that it's a lot of hard work and a little bit of luck. Yes. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So yeah, when I started at Austin Zoo, I was trying to make connections in the state, networking, especially during the pandemic. A lot of zoos and aquariums wanted to help each other out, see what the others are doing, you know, to stay, you know, afloat while we were closed. And so the um, there was um, kind of these monthly meetings going on, virtual meetings for um, zoo and aquarium educators that I joined. And through that, I was connected with um, Rick Labello. Hi, Rick, if you listen. Um, <laughs> uh, and Rick is the education curator at El Paso Zoo. And he um, has been pushing for um, wolf restoration in Texas for most of his career. He used to work in the national park industry and now he's in zoos and uh, he, we ended up connecting. Uh, he learned that wolves were one of my favorite animals. And so he, he reached out. Your and, second favorite to be, to be technical. Yes. My <laughs> second favorite, sorry, gray wolves. Um, it's all good. <laughs> painted dogs. Hey, uh, though. <laughs> Painted dogs have a lot of good people fighting for them. We uh, interviewed yes. um, uh, uh, Dr. Greg Rasmussen, if I'm saying that correctly, mm-hmm. a while back on the podcast. And that's one of our most downloaded episodes. It's just, he's awesome. So I'm yes. glad they're getting Shout more out to painted dogs for sure. Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, initially I had talked to Rick about getting like a petition signed by different zoos from across the strait to give to Texas Parks and Wildlife to be like, you know, this is something that we're interested in doing maybe you guys can do something about this. Um, and then we were kind of advised that's not the route to go. You guys should go nonprofit. And Rick was like, you know, I'm already running a couple nonprofits. Rick is very well established in his career and was ready to pass the baton on a little bit, I think. And I was like, yep, let's do it. So yeah, we've um, officially been listed as a nonprofit since June of last year. So we're pretty um, pretty early. Congratulations! That's not you. easy for our no. listeners out there. I'm still learning about the process, uh, working towards getting our podcast uh, listed as a nonprofit, uh, so we can apply for more grants and things like this. But it's it's not easy. It's not. Yes. I, I I need like a crash course in it because I'm a yes. very busy person. So I applaud, <laughs> I applaud you guys for getting it done. 
Yes, I thankfully um, had Rick and uh, Graham Davis on the board give me, you know, they didn't have the time to dedicate to it like I do, but they were able to answer questions as I had them. You know, government paperwork is always just really fun to fill out. So um, (laughs) they thankfully helped uh, navigate me through that. And yeah, our vision, I'll read it as it states so on our website, but our vision is to restore the wolf as an apex predator to areas where it once played a role in maintaining the balance of nature in the Chihuahuan Desert mountain region of West Texas in a manner that protects the interests of those who make a living raising livestock, hunting, and ecotourism. And yeah, we believe that we can do this as we make connections with stakeholders and landowners um, and just continue to educate the public on the importance of this apex predator. So that's kind of our main focus right now. Um, We obviously were working on getting established, uh, getting our action plan together. And right now we are pretty much assessing what's the best way to assess stakeholders, because our hope is that if we can document what stakeholders actual viewpoint is at this time, you know, as we talk to them about having a managed population of wolves, that we can present that information to Texas Parks and Wildlife and hopefully um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services. And maybe hopefully we can get the wolf restored um, in West Texas. And that's a big thing that I've noticed. I've sat in on a virtual hearing with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, discussing the recovery plan for Mexican gray wolves in Arizona and New Mexico. And people are much more comfortable when you discuss having a managed population that you're attempting to keep within a certain area. When you are talking in terms Mm -hmm. of restoring an animal to its entire historic range, that is scary for a lot of, of ranchers and landovers and landowners. And I think the reality is, you know, there's not the same landscape that there was, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you know, sure. it's, it's not mm-hmm. the same. But we do think that there has been um, somewhat of a shift in demographic out in West Texas, where there's a lot of people that own a lot of land and that they are more interested in having historic species present. So, yeah, but we're really early on still. So, um, but we really, really, um, one of our main goals is to connect with the people that are concerned and help alleviate some of those concerns. Well, hope you've come to the right place. We will help uh, support and promote the Texas Lobo Coalition, that's for sure. And would you mind discussing the conservation story of the Mexican wolf in a little bit more detail? Like, where do they currently live? What are their Mm -hmm. numbers? Are populations increasing or decreasing? Mm -hmm. Are zoos breeding them as part of a conservation plan? Mm -hmm. And I think you touched on that Mexican wolves have been released back in the wild, just Mm -hmm. not in Texas. Yes. Um, so they are, um, right off the bat, there are species survival plans for them um, in uh, a few zoos across uh, the United States, um, which is awesome. There uh, has also been uh, in New Mexico and Arizona, um, a cross fostering program that has partnered with uh, zoos that have those species survival plans in place where cubs are taken, a couple of cubs, uh, pups, I should say, are taken from the zoos and actually put into a den with um, wild pups that are approximately the same age. And it's actually interesting because from what I've read and watched about the the cross-fostering program, when a mom comes back to the den, she can kind of smell something went on. So she'll move the den, but she'll move all the pups, even the ones that weren't um, her own. Now, there is concern with what the survival rate is with wild born compared to in cap, uh, in captivity born. 
So that's that's been argued by some that it's not the most effective means. But hey, you know, something's being done, something's being tried. But yeah, there is a breeding program for them in captivity. Thankfully, I want to say there's about 300 in captivity um, uh, at this point. So yeah, I, I that's the last number I heard was about 300 um, in breeding programs. And yeah, their historic range was a good majority of the American Southwest. So Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, um, and most of Mexico was the historic range. They have been extirpated from Texas since the 1970s. So as far as we know, um, there has not been a wild Mexican gray wolf in Texas in like 50 years at this point. And what about in Mexico? In Mexico, I'm less familiar with what their numbers are looking like. There was a binational effort um, when wolves were reintroduced to New Mexico and Arizona. Some were released in Mexico as well. Um, From what I understand, those numbers are much lower than what we have in the United States. I would need to double check for sure, though. Oh, no, I understand. And if there's 300 under human care in zoos um, or breeding facilities... Do we have any idea what the actual wild population is altogether? Yeah. So in the United States, um, in Arizona and New Mexico, there were about 42 packs, which to define a pack, I think they just needed to be at least two uh, wolves um, working together, um, which is kind of a loose term for a pack. But um, in 2019, there were 163 animals recorded in New Mexico and Arizona. Now, Um, A lot of experts and researchers argue that that area should have anywhere from 750 to 1,000 individuals. Um, So there's still a long way to go. And that's part of why the recovery plan was readdressed recently um, by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. But yeah, that was 2019. um, But there has overall been a slight increase in the wild. But a lot of people are arguing that it's not it's not enough. And we would obviously like to see them in more of their historic range than what they are in currently, for sure. Well, yes. And I think that that would be an argument of why it's awesome that the Texas Lobo Coalition is trying to bring them back to Texas in order to have more land to help secure more of these wild releases and give them more of a fighting chance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And now for our listeners that are really interested in the Mexican wolf and then also understanding that their populations are still endangered and still needing our help and definitely needing the help from the Texas Lobo Coalition. What can you tell people to do to help raise the awareness? Yeah. um, I mean, as far as awareness goes, talk to people, um, tell people what you learned today or on, um, you know, other platforms. Um, Social media is a really powerful tool. Um, If you care about something, let your friends know, let your family know. And then as far as, as more of a, of a grassroots effort helping, the biggest thing you can do is talk to your legislators. This is such a politicized um, animal. This is such a politicized restoration going on through throughout the country with whatever subspecies of wolf you may be talking about. Um, and your legislators are who ultimately need to hear your voice. And, and they're the ones who are going to have the power to sway the entities that 
can do those reintroductions and restorations. So talking to your legislators is huge. Supporting organizations financially, whether it be ours or other um, wolf conservation efforts, um, that way we can provide those mitigation funds. I know as far as Texas goes, if we are going to want to do, if we are able to do a restoration, there's going to be a lot of ground research that's going to need to need to be done. Environmental impact research, all that good stuff. And but yeah, for me, the biggest thing is talk to people, talk to your legislators. Um, your vote counts, your dollar counts. Think about where you spend your money and who you vote for. It sounds really basic, but you know, that's that's what can make a difference at the end of the day. It's a lot of people doing a little thing to help. I love that quote, Hope. I'm going to steal that. It's a lot of people <laughs> doing a little thing that really helps move the needle. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so I just, I really appreciate, uh, appreciate your comments on that because it is inspiring. And sometimes it can feel like, oh, I can't do much to help. I'm just one person. But we've seen collectively on this podcast time and time again that a lot of voices coming together can really, can really help move the needle and voting by your dollar. I mean, we've seen companies really change their overall mission and platform uh, because people weren't buying their product or <laughs> and so it really, and, and I think the same thing when it comes to policymakers is that if you're not voting for them or you're electing people that uh, do have a little bit more of uh, interest in the environment and helping wildlife that, uh, that, that sends, sends a message. So those are really excellent points. And hope for listeners that maybe want to do a little bit more grassroots or um, potentially help you out in any way, shape, or form, uh, what do you recommend that we could do to actually help you in the Texas Global Coalition to help with your mission? Yeah. Um, so if you want to keep an eye on us and how our progress is going, just check out um, TexasLoboCoalition.com if you're wanting to um, keep an eye on our efforts. And you can subscribe to that. Um, We're on Facebook as well. If you message us or comment uh, on Facebook, I am always happy to jump on and answer any questions um, or give you more ways to be involved. So yeah, you know, we're a pretty small board. We're pretty responsive. We're, We're really wanting to just connect with as many people as possible. So I want to be accessible to people that are interested in helping. So, <laughs> Wow, that's so awesome. And Hope, you're definitely an inspiration for me. So I have a couple more questions for you. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, first of all, how do you juggle all of this? I mean, you're, you work full time as an education manager. Um, they're long days uh, caring for animals, caring for people. And like you said, all the paperwork and budgets and scheduling and stuff that come, the not so fun stuff that comes along with it. How do you juggle that and then this other po- passion project that has really grown? And And what's your advice for people that regardless of their job, regardless if they work in the zoo industry or they're an accountant or a chef, but they want to get out there and maybe work a little bit more on something that on something that they're passionate about, but maybe don't think they have the time or the wherewithal or how to how to start this. Yeah. Um, it's been kind of interesting for me too, because, um, you know, in a management role, my my hours can be pretty crazy. I'm bringing my work with me home, work home with me already sometimes. So yeah, I was kind of concerned when I when I took the leap and started the nonprofit like do I actually have the bandwidth to do this? And if you're passionate about something, you'll find the time to do it. And I think for me, especially surrounding myself with the people that support that um and that push me to keep going forward, 
that's helped immensely because especially the project I'm working on, it can be disheartening to hear, you know, some of the comments people make. So I think just staying optimistic and surrounding yourself with people that support you. Um, God bless my boyfriend for putting up with all of this. Um, and my board alone, you know, if I'm feeling... Thank you, boyfriend. We love you for what you're <laughs> doing Matthew. for Hope and for what Hope's doing with for the Mexican wolves. Um, and... <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, he's been really inspirational. He'll come up with ideas out of the box that, you know, I've never thought about before. Um, and then I've got my board. Um, hello guys. I've got these board members that if I have an idea or I'm frustrated about something, I can text them, I can email them, or I can even say I'm feeling disheartened about this and they can help me, you know, keep my head level. I think honestly, just surrounding yourself with people that care about what you care about and that care about you can help you to do things that you didn't think you were capable of. Oh, absolutely, Hope. Uh, to quote my mother-in-law, she has a, an amazing saying that I that I can't wait to share with my boys someday because I think it's just so key. It's, show me your friends and I'll show you who you are. And so, of course, during adolescence, it's hard to find necessarily the right group of people to surround yourself around. And then as we grow and get older, you, you kind of narrow the herd and you you find people that are like-minded. And I've been lucky enough to surround myself around amazing people that, as you mentioned, really support me in my time of need and encourage me and are, are my sounding board, my husband, uh, my family, and so many really good friends throughout the zoo industry and just I met in college and, in, and even now in my day-to-day -day life. And and they help push me and they help encourage me to keep doing the podcast. And obviously, Chris, my podcast partner, is is fantastic. Like, there's no way that I could do this podcast by myself. A lot of it's more just for the emotional support of like, we can do this or you do this and I do that of like multitasking. So it's not it's not as big and scary, uh, these side projects or these passion projects when you have a good either team or partnership or uh, board, as you mentioned. And so... Yeah, it's it's really clutch to surround yourself around other people that are like minded and and are are going to help you throughout uh, throughout your lifetime. I think so. Uh, that's just I'm so happy that you you have that and that you're able to take that. And then manifest this amazing uh, this amazing organization, the Texas Global Coalition, that is doing really great things, and I can't wait to see what else uh, you're going to have in store for us for the future. So we'll be definitely having more of these conversations. Yes, absolutely. Anytime. <laughs> and then my last question before I let you go is for all of our listeners out there that are interested in having a zookeeping career or zoo education, right? That's a really incredible career opportunity. Uh, what advice do you have for them to break into the industry? Because it can be a little daunting. Yeah. Um, first of all, this is a competitive field and just know you're never going to be in it for the money. <laughs> As I think any zookeeper or <laughs> someone that works yeah. uh, in, in the industry knows, but you will end up in a career that's more rewarding than I think anything else you could do with your life. But I'm a little biased, <laughs> you know, so, and also be aware that you know, sometimes you have to up and move across state lines by yourself. This is a competitive field. You need to take opportunities as they come. But by doing so, you're going to end up having experiences that you didn't think you'd ever have. 
Our education is key. I know everyone says that to everyone every day of your life, but in this industry, it's true. Um, any zoo that you're visiting, any accredited organization that you're visiting, those zookeepers all have at least a bachelor's degree. Um, some of them have also gotten vet tech certifications or master's degrees. So your education is important. Almost more important than that is getting your foot in the door, making those connections, volunteer, intern, make a good impression, work hard. Don't be in it for the photo opportunities with the animals. Be in it for the care of the animals. Yeah, I I mean, I'm proud of myself and what I've done. I have a hard time saying I'm proud of myself sometimes, but if you you'll be happier in the long run, even if you're making less money than you thought you would if you're out there doing everything you can to make a difference. So that's my two cents. Yes. Well, I am proud of you, Hope. And I appreciate what you're doing for the education animals at the Austin Zoo. I appreciate what you're doing for the Mexican wolf and hopefully restoring it back to some of its native Texas region. And you're an inspiration and I want to, I want to keep this conversation going and stay in touch with you. And I hope our listeners will check out texaslobalcoalition.com to check out and see what Hope's group is doing and to learn more about the Mexican wolf and their plight and how to help that organization. We'll also put that on our show notes as well. And of course, we have to give a big shout out to the Austin Zoo too, um, for not only their wonderful care that they give for the animals and their education programs and the conservation that Hope and her team are helping to develop, but also for rescuing animals, because that is a really important thing uh, currently until we get some more of this legislation to help stop exotic pet ownership. Um, So thank you for listening and Hope. It was such a pleasure meeting you uh, in person. And I look forward to staying in touch and talking again. Yes. Thank you so much, Angie. I really appreciate it. 